are about to listen to is a podcast produced by Philoclea Ministries. Philoclea Ministries is offered to all free of charge. However, there are real and immediate needs associated with it. If you are a regular listener or enjoy any of the content produced by Philoclea Ministries, we humbly ask that you consider becoming a contributor. You can learn more about our funding needs at www.philocleaministries.org. Please note that Philoclea Ministries is not a 401c3 nonprofit organization and that contributions are not tax deductible. Supporting Philoclea Ministries is just like supporting your other favorite podcasters and content creators, and all proceeds pay the production bills, make it possible for us to pay our content manager, and provide a living stipend for Father David. God bless you and enjoy the podcast. Glory to Jesus Christ, glory forever. Welcome back, everybody, to our study of the uh, the Ladder of Divine Ascent by St. John Climacus. And uh, we're picking up this evening with a new step. Uh, some of these are a little shorter, as you can see as we go through them. But uh, again, I don't want to rush through too many in one night, even if we have a few shorter ones. So I won't go past uh, two of them in one evening. Uh, but uh, we'll take our time. We'll Usually we're lucky if we get through one anyways. But tonight is step number 20 on bodily vigil and how to use it to attain spiritual vigil or one might say alertness or vigilance, and how to practice it. Uh, and so we've been talking a lot, a lot about various appetites. If you remember last time, we talked about sleep and uh, treating it as an appetite like any other and to order it in such a way that one might uh, foster a kind of vigilance, but also uh, uh, open up the time for deeper prayer. And so not to spend the majority of our life or a third of our life asleep, uh, but try to dedicate more of that to, to prayer, which is more restorative in the end anyways. The Desert Fathers often would say that one hour of prayer is like three hours of sleep. And that there is something restorative about entering into this relationship, certainly with a living God, that is going to bring healing to mind and body. And uh, oftentimes we have a hard time trusting that, that even in our physical ailments, the thing that is most curative and healing for us is spiritual. It's uh, our, our prayer life and our intimacy with the Lord. We certainly will take advantage of, you know, what's available to us uh, medically. Uh, and uh, but in the end, it's the grace of God, you know, that guides the hands of our physician, but also uh, that helps to bring about our healing of mind, body and spirit. And we always want to remember that. I think sometimes when we get ill, uh, we have a tendency to uh, turn away from God and towards ourselves, because I think we're so focused upon uh, the, the physical pain or illness that we're struggling with. And so the fathers challenge us here in a bit in terms of how we view our appetites and even the ones that are most basic and we see as uh, most necessary for us. And that's true with sleep and uh, bodily vigil has always been a very powerful way of humbling the mind uh, through humbling the body. And, but also staying vigilant that we can make use in the same way that our appetites and our senses can be something that lead us into sin, 
that we're in this constant state of receptivity. It can also be our body that becomes a, an aid to us in the spiritual life. Uh, and so practicing something like fasting or, uh, or, like, or vigils where we break our sleep precisely to pray is a way of using our body to turn the mind and the heart to God as well as to humble uh, the mind and, and the body and the appetites. And so this is the line of thought that John will be following here this evening. He begins by saying, some stand before earthly kings without weapons and without armor, but others hold staffs of office or have shields or swords. The former are vastly superior to the latter, for they are usually personal relations to the king and members of the royal household. So it is with earthly kings. So those who are closest to the king have no need for earthly weapons, as it were, that, uh, or earthly banners, as it were, that, that to give them a kind of dignity or identity, that it's their relationship to the king that gives them that reality. And so those not holding a standard or those not holding a weapon are acknowledged by others as being closer to, to the king himself. And so it is for the Christian, you know, the, the absence of the things in this life that we hold on to and that we often see as important for, you know, our security or uh, uh, for our identity. Uh, that our willingness to let go of those things and our, or the fact that we have let go of them reveals a, uh, a closeness to the Lord, that we are in union communion with him and in that union communion find that which we need the most and that which uh, satisfies the human heart like nothing in this world can. And uh, this puts the ascetic life uh, in perspective for us. You know, it's not about simply self-discipline, and it's certainly not punitive, punishing the body or uh, a, a, having a negative anthropology or a negative view of material things. It is about the desire for God and seeking what he alone can give us and understanding that our sin often leads us to cling to those things of this world, to be attached to them in such a sense that we lose sight of God altogether. There's a kind of disorder that exists that has to be addressed in the spiritual life. And so we aren't Christians only in the mind. It has to be the whole self that is involved in this relationship with God. And I think when it is, our faith is reduced to something that is purely notional, then it's going to fade pretty quickly when we face the realities uh, of, of the world, but also the realities of being a human being. The, the trials, the difficulties that we go through, the afflictions that we experience, uh, that uh, living only in our head is going to be something that doesn't lead us very far and carry us very far in this life, except perhaps into depression or despondency. You know, there are those who have everything within the world and yet cannot free themselves, excuse me, just for one moment. 
cannot free themselves from this kind of the sense of emptiness or sense of futility uh, of life. And so they can have everything in the world and seem to be blessed in so many ways and yet experience a kind of deep darkness. And Paul, Paul tells us in, I think it's the second letter to the Corinthians chapter five, I believe, but we, we've been subject to futility in order that we might be subject to hope, that we are allowed to experience our own weakness and our poverty and the, how the things of this world and even the things that we so often work so hard for for many years come to nothing, including our own lives, the brevity of our lives. We're, we're allowed to experience the futility of so many different things in order that we might be subject to something far greater, hope, the promise that of everlasting life in Christ, that this is what has been given us and this is what we should value the most. And so what John is saying here is that the individual who's let go of the hope, their hope in those material things and stand as it, as it were before God empty handed uh, are actually going to be filled with something that cannot be taken away from them, that is enduring. A kind of invincible, what we've often talked about, an invincible hope, an invincible faith, uh, an invincible peace. And this is what is most precious. It's the pearl of great price or the treasure hidden in the field that one would be willing to give up everything in order to possess. It's, the problem is, is that we often do not have the faith to see that, or we have never tasted it in our life so as to desire it and desire it with all of our hearts. So essentially what we are talking about is desire. And we've talked about that in every single group that we've had on every father, that uh, we are not Stoics. And in fact, the opposite, we are men and women of desire and the deepest desire, uh, a desire that only God can fill, that we're made for God, made it as in his image and likeness, uh, but also that we might share in the fullness of his life. And uh, when we do not live that reality, and this is where we see the, the darkness of sin, is that we lose sight of our identity, but we lose the capacity to address that desire, that, that need for love and life that God can only give to us. And we search desperately for ways to uh, fill that void within us. And uh, we can maintain, as we've often talked about, that illusion for a long period of time and replace one thing after, you know, with another for, uh, you know, for years on end. Uh, but eventually it breaks down, I think, in our life. And especially as we age and we, begin to face what the fathers tell us that we should be uh, considering always and, and uh, everywhere, the, the reality of our mortality. And John will uh, bring that up again here. And certainly we encounter it in Evercatinos, you know, that uh, the, the acknowledgement of the brevity of our life and uh, that none of the things that we so often pursue desperately are going to endure. 
So back to our step here, number two. Uh, now let us see how we stand before our king when we stand at our prayers in the evening or during the day and night. For some of their evening all-night vigil lift up their hands in prayer, being immaterial and stripped of all care. Others stand at that time chanting psalms. Others are more occupied in reading. And some out of weakness courageously resist sleep by working with their hands. Others immerse themselves in the thought of death, hoping thus to obtain contrition. And of all these, the first and the last persevere in all night vigil for the love of God. So isn't it interesting, you know, that there are those who are so wrapped in the love of God that they will lose this sense of even the need for sleep. The time will pass very quickly. And before they know it, the, the warmth of the sun uh, at dawn will be the thing that sort of draws them out of their prayer. And so it's this group and those who mourn over their sin, those who have contrition uh, are, are the ones who let go of uh, this attachment to the things of this world and are able to engage in this uh, nightly prayer vigil without being attentive so much to the, the need to distract the mind or, or what they're feeling on a physical level, the fatigue that they might be, be feeling. The second, do what befits a monk. So it is befitting a monk that this would be part of the discipline, that they would seek to discipline themselves in sleep, but also to break the night in prayer. And so we know many of the roles of monasteries will include vigils, uh, a midnight prayer in the West, you know, with the Trappist, for example, it's 2 or 2.30 that they'll do uh, vigils uh, in the morning. And... Uh, and so the, there is this long tradition from the beginning of monasticism of praying at night in this way. And so he says, the second do what befits a monk, what is suited to their state. Well, the third go the lowest way. Uh, yet God accepts and values the offerings of each according to their intention and power. So there are those that may have to use things like reading and other forms of uh, keeping other forms and ways of keeping them themselves awake and attentive during the night. And yet John says, you know, despite the differences between them, uh, God embraces the offering. Uh, so whether it arises out of this pure heart and desire for God, or simply the monastic state, or that it arises out of this poverty, you know, that in one's weakness, one still seeks to offer God this gift of this night prayer, that all of them receive blessings through doing so. And I think this should speak to, to all of us living in the world, that I, I've never had anyone, I've never had any priest, any spiritual director, nobody in seminary ever speak about actually practicing vigils, actually doing it. You know, the, in college, you know, the, you know, students will pull all-nighters, or they'll just stay up all night for the fun of it, or partying, or whatever it might be. 
And, uh, but when it comes to prayer, it's a curious thing. This, this aspect of the ascetic life that has been part of our spiritual tradition from the beginning, and that we see Christ himself engage in, praying all night long, that it's never spoken of as, it, as though it's unrealistic to have this kind of expectation of oneself, or that there would be, a, a, it would be possible to desire such a thing and find fruit in it. That our, our thoughts immediately go to, what will this do to me the next day? I'll be a wreck. I won't be able to do my work. I'll be cranky. And, uh, and we come up with all the reasons why we cannot do this in any form or for any amount of time. And I remember when we first talked about uh, John Chrysostom's writing about this saying, he was telling that you should raise your children in the middle of the night to join you in this practice, just to have them say one prayer and then go back to bed. And everybody chuckled as if that's nuts, you know? And, uh, but uh, how, how is it that you form uh, individuals, even other than doing so within their childhood from the earliest years to have this sense of something that has value and has great, great importance? And uh, this is across the board, you know, it's one for us thing for us to talk about fasting or uh, in the West adoration and all these different spiritual practices. If you approach it in a minimalist way, same thing with the liturgy. If you approach it in a minimalist way, that's what you're going to communicate to people, that it has minimal value and importance and that you don't go over an hour with it because that's too much to ask of people. And you want them to be able to get home and watch the Steelers game or football for the rest of the day. Uh, and so we are communicating uh, that th these are the most beautiful things and the most spiritually fruitful and enduring things and can be trans transformative. And, uh, and so if never practiced, one is never going to experience the beauty of it and never certainly come to love it. And we've talked about having to form our minds and hearts in such a way that we come to love virtue. We come to see what it offers us in, in regards to our capacity to love God, to love others, and to, to give ourselves to God, to, to love something like fasting, because we see that it deepens our prayer. But if we never fast or we fast twice a year minimally, we're never going to experience the fruit of it. And the same thing is true with vigils, unless we, we practice it in reality. Even if we are awakened at night with heartburn, what we should first do is turn to God and pray. You know, as we become conscious, uh, or something wakes us in the middle of the night, you know, we usually get frustrated and we think, oh gosh, you know, I'll run and take some antacid or drink some water or the dogs bark and want to go out. You know, that's been my experience too. The first couple of times of that, I was like, you've got to be kidding me. It's 1.30 and, you know, drag myself down there. And, uh, but our response to that should be to become mindful of God. Uh, in the stillness of that night, and not to see it as an interruption, but as an opportunity 
to turn towards him. And the fact that we don't do that regularly as part of our spiritual life prevents us at those other moments when those things happen from doing that, from turning to God in prayer, even if it's saying a simple prayer to him before we return, return to bed. And, uh, you know, if Paul of Dekimov, uh, this great Eastern spiritual writer says, you know, our goal is to become prayer, uh, not just to engage in it as a discipline. And if this is so, then all of these uh, circumstances are going to become opportunities for us to turn toward God. So, and that includes the afflictions, the tests, the trials of day-to-day -day life, uh, as well as these opportunities to pray at night. So, I don't want to go on too much about it, but of the first couple of paragraphs, anybody have any comments or questions? Okay. Number three, the, a vigilant eye makes the mind pure but much sleep hardens the soul. So we, we get a sense very clear, clearly here from the beginning that they tie this kind of bodily vigil to spiritual vigil as in, as is in the title, that it helps create a kind of alertness of spirit, that we might feel physically humbled by breaking our sleep or staying up uh, in the middle of the night to pray. But what it does is it makes the heart more receptive to God. Uh, that is if we're, we are praying during this time. Whereas he says, much sleep hardens the soul. It creates what we've talked about in previous sections, uh, insensitivity, a deadening of the soul, where we lose our hunger and thirst for things that are spiritual or don't see any value or purpose to them. Uh, and so if we are not stretching ourselves, as it were, if we don't seek to foster that yearning for God, what it's going to create here is a hardness of soul, an insensibility. And what we are seeking to do within the spiritual life in all of our ascetical practices is to sensitize ourselves to the presence of God. If we, again, if we are in this constant state of receptivity in and through our senses, our bodily senses, that, and we enter into communion with things in and through our senses, then if we are forming the mind and the heart to be attentive to God and forming that deepest part of ourselves, the noose, the eye of the heart, the eye of the soul in such a way, that we are, uh, have this greater capacity to see the presence of God in all that we do and in every person that we encounter, then we are going to have this greater intimacy with him. We're going to sensitize the heart. So that's what we begin to experience. So rather than being drawn into sin uh, through our appetites and senses, we can be drawn towards he who is the source of all of our desires and the source of our senses, they're rightly ordered toward him and find their fulfillment in him ultimately. John writes, would practicing vigils have a positive effect on being subject to deceptive dreams? 
I've gone down numerous dead ends in the past trying to interpret dreams or thinking that they are precognitive, but most of them turned out to be mirages. You know, it's interesting that you bring this up. Uh, John Kalamakis is probably the strongest of any of the fathers that I've come across who says, ignore dreams. Don't pay attention to them at all. And uh, I wouldn't go as far as John, especially given my, my background. Uh, but uh, I have to say that people often look for meaning in dreams in an indiscriminate kind of way. There are common elements to our human experience uh, and these common elements of our experience then give rise to certain images often appearing in people's dreams in a consistent way. But, you know, even Freud, who saw dreams as the royal road to the unconscious, understood that there, couldn't, there should not be a kind of wild analysis of them, uh, that dreams would be interpreted in the context of one's psychoanalysis. So in the context of this work being done, where one is looking at the movement of the thoughts, the emotions, uh, and uh, what, what one experiences even on a, on a bodily level and interpreting them in light of one's free association and one's thoughts about them in relationship to one's analyst. And so outside of that, he said, we, we fall into what John was, is fearful of and why he discourages people from being attentive to dreams is that so often the mind, because of our defense mechanisms, will alter them in such a way that they become at times bizarre. That even that we are in this unconscious state, or as you mentioned, precognitive state, that uh, our defense mechanisms still are in place. They're there for a reason. And so even when the unconscious pushes itself forward in our dreams, still our mind will work very hard to alter it. So the meaning of those things is not perfectly clear to us because otherwise it might be too, too disturbing. And often our dreams are disturbing in any case. You know, I've had knife fights and all kinds of things in my dreams with people. <laughs> you think, oh my gosh, where did that come from? But, you know, also being, having gone through analysis, you learn, okay, uh, a deeper understanding arises in light of the context of the fullness of one's life and experience and the gradual knowledge of that internal narrative that we all have that goes on in our mind that's rooted in the entirety of our experience. And so John is going, John says, I think wisely, don't allow yourself to get wrapped up in it because the oddness of it or maybe the aggression that is expressed into it, in it or the sensuality, he said the demons can make use of that to stir up the passions or, or simply to distract us, to get us thinking about dreams throughout the course of a day and wondering about them and talking to other people about this. You can't believe the dream that I had last night. I know people who have like three or four part dreams. They're like expert dreamers and in incredible detail. 
and you could sit for a half an hour while they'll, they'll tell you about their dreams and uh, in, a, in one given night. And, but does it bring them, I think John's question would be, does it, it bring them any clear knowledge of the self or the soul or what we struggle with? You know, is that time focused on trying to interpret that which is beyond our grasp really worth uh, spending? Uh, or should we simply do what we do with temptations, which is gently set them aside and redirect the mind and the heart to God? And um, so I see that John is strident about that, but I understand why. And because I think it is a limited context where that, that can be fruitful for us. And, and I don't think we can be dismissive of dreams because we see them manifest themselves in scripture and look at St. Joseph, you know, uh, uh, but there was a kind of purity of heart there. And God uses that moment where, you know, Joseph is being, and I, I, I won't go much further than this, but Joseph is struggling here because he's presented with, you know, these options of, you know, thinking that Mary was unfaithful and so conceived in adultery and uh, that he could bear the shame of that or he could divorce her. But if he divorces her because of adultery, the, the response, the law said that one had to be stoned to death. So he would be putting Mary in jeopardy. So his thought is, you know, I'm going to divorce her quietly, send her away quietly. Uh, and uh, or if we think even that, and that's assuming that Mary and Joseph never talked. Now, if we assume that Mary and Joseph talked about the conception, we could still think that Joseph would be confronted with this conundrum. Mary is the spouse of the Holy Spirit. And so I must withdraw that God is acting in her in this extraordinary fashion, that in and through her, the Messiah is going to be born. And, uh, and so I will withdraw, I'll send her away quietly so as not to put her in jeopardy. But in either case, Joseph can't make his way out of this through rational thought or through the law. And one of my favorite paintings of this is George Latour's uh, painting of it. If you have the opportunity to look it up, it shows Joseph as an older man, but with the scriptures open in his lap, asleep. So it's, it's like Joseph is searching the word of God to find some way to address this reality you know, reading the, the prophets, reading the law, trying to figure out how to do it. And it's only when he falls asleep that the barriers begin to drop, that the defenses drop, that everything in Joseph saying, you must withdraw, that God can have an angel come to him and say, no, Joseph, you must take him as your son and you must name him and establish his true lineage. So we see God acting in and through a dream, but in this particular way, you know, that there are these human limitations and defenses that were preventing Joseph from going, being able to go where faith uh, would need to take him. 
And, uh, and that's true for all of us. In some way, we must allow ourselves to dream. And by that, I mean, we must allow ourselves to walk in the darkness of faith in and through our prayer life in order that God might manifest a truth to us that is beyond reason or the limits of our capacity to understand and cognition and reveal himself to us as he is in himself or to speak the truth that he desires us to hear and be able to receive it, not with fear and anxiety, but from the hand of love itself. And so uh, it's, we don't need to worry about analyzing our dreams. What we need to worry about is purifying our heart and seeking purity of heart and of praying and opening our minds and our heart as deeply as we can to God in faith. Okay, I'll get off my soapbox and we'll get back to the text. Number four, a vigilant monk is a foe of, to fornication, but a sleepy one is its mate. So a vigilant monk is going to be one, again, who through this vigilance with his bodily sleep creates this vigilance of heart. And so is going to see the temptations as they emerge, as well as avoid the things that could possibly be temptations for them. And so the vigilant monk, the one who practices vigils, is going to be able to overcome that passion of fornication. Whereas the sleepy monk, the one who you know, gives himself to excess sleep, is going to be its mate. You know, Because you're in this state that is not vigilant, and it's often when you're falling asleep or, or just awaking in the morning that uh, awakening that uh, you're most vulnerable and often at least vigilant. So, you know, I think in our day and age, the practice of vigils become very important. I often have people, men and women, but especially men, you know, talk about you know, the, the struggle with pornography, the struggle with masturbation, or the spirit of fornication that has taken such deep root, even for decades, and feeling this constant frustration, shame, guilt about it. And again, there has never been communicated to them uh, the idea of fasting or the connection between the bodily appetites, food, and sexual appetite, and then the connection with appetite for material goods has never been laid out for them or the particular remedies for dealing with those things. So to fast, to, to fast in regards to all of our different appetites, including sleep, as a way of creating this vigilant heart, of humbling the mind and the body, but humbling it in such a way that it cries out to God and reaches out to God for the strength and grace that is needed. And so one of the, the ascetic disciplines that priests should be talking to people about and spiritual people, directors should be talking to their directories about is the practice of vigils in one form or fashion, that it's appropriate for their station in life but that is going to help with this, create this kind of vigilant heart, alertness. It's a funny thing, isn't it? That 
the depriving ourselves of sleep is something that actually creates alertness. There's, you know, it's sort of a uh, an odd, odd kind of thing uh, to to think about, and I think that's why people avoid it. They think, well, okay, I'm going to be dragging butt tomorrow. Excuse the the language. If I'm if I stay up or I break the night, but in reality, that doesn't happen. I think when we stay up late to watch a movie, or someone stays up late to watch Monday Night Football they're going to be dragging themselves into work the next day, you know, with a huge mug of coffee and be sleepy eyed all day because they've engaged in something that is not restorative in the same way that prayer is to enter into this relationship with the living God. The one who restores us in, in every fashion is going to be something that uh, allows us to be able to do that. But even grow again in our uh, not only in our spiritual alertness but to develop this kind of discernment where we're able to see things with a kind of clarity and make our way through them that uh you know for students keeping you know doing all-nighters does not help i did not do an all-nighter through undergraduate and graduate graduate school ever because it does not help. It just physically exhausts you. And more often than not, those all-nighters are driven by anxiety, a fear of failure uh, that is often rooted in procrastination from not having done your work and study over the course of time. Whereas for the person who lives this ordered life and one that is ordered toward God, they're going to be driven in all they do, not by fear and anxiety, but by love. And driven by love, they're going to be able to engage in the things of day-to-day -day life, including their studies, with a greater clarity. Because they're not carrying the weight, the baggage of anxiety. Their vision is not going to be clouded by that. And so be able to make their way through that with a kind of joyfulness. As, as well as the discipline needed to do it well. And, you know, I think it takes a willingness on our part to slow down and really think about this. You know, have I thought about keeping vigils in my life and allowing myself to experience, okay, maybe the fatigue the next, next day and maybe for a long time, but also wait to experience the consolation and the strength that comes to us from God in and through it. We're willing to experiment with just about everything else. One would think that we would be willing at least to experiment a little bit with prayer and with vigils and fasting as those who are Christians. Uh, number five, vigil is a quenching of lust, deliverance from dream phantoms, a tearful eye, a softened heart, the guarding of thoughts, the smelting furnace of food, the subduing of passions, the taming of spirits, the chastisement of the tongue, the banishment of fantasies. So one could spend a long time meditating just on this one paragraph in terms of thinking about the particular fruits of this and how far reaching it is in terms of bringing about a kind of spiritual healing. Quenching of lust should be enough 
I think, for us in terms of the fruit of this practice to make us want to do it. But the deliverance from dream phantoms, you know, the terror dreams, you know, that, that wake people up in the middle of the night with a soaking t-shirt, you know, those kind, kinds of things, uh, kind of agitated heart, a tearful eye, a softened heart. So, you know, it fosters this kind of sensitivity, again, to the things that we would want to be sensitive to, sin, the way that we've turned away from love. So it creates contrition of heart. It softens our heart uh, towards the things of God, but towards others, it makes us guard our thoughts, the smelting furnace of food. So, you know, it becomes something that diminishes our appetite for food that we often turn to as a way of psychologically comforting of our, ourselves. You know, we've all had that thing, you know, we've had a hard day, our bosses barked at us or just everything has gone wrong. And we go home and we eat a bag of potato chips or a bag of cookies or in order to console ourselves. And we've talked about this before, you know, there are all these different ways of eating. There can be like this aggressive eating too, where one isn't even hungry and you're, you simply throw stuff in your mouth and gnaw, you know, it's like a biting that it's a, a you're taking out your aggression. It's sort of like a dog chewing on a bone. That's why we, we give them all these toys that they burn off all these this energy uh, by fighting with each other or with us. Uh, we do the same thing for ourselves, but we do it with food, you know, biting and ripping off a piece of pizza or whatever it might be uh, in order to essentially do the same kind of thing. Whereas it becomes the smelting, vigils become the smelting furnace. It burns away the need to do that and soothes and calms the heart. It subdues the passions and tames the spirits, chastises the tongue. So this humbling, again, of the mind and the body slows us down in a sense that we are not quick to speak that harsh word or to press forward our own opinion or judgment about something in such a way that we sin against charity. And so it, it makes us prize silence more than speaking and prize listening more, more than talking. And then the banishment of fantasies. So uh, again, with this humbling of the body, or humbling of the mind and the body through vigils. Again, when we are resting in Christ and then through prayer, you know, we are not going to be drawn into these waking dreams, these daydreams. So it's not only something that frees us, delivers us from the dream phantoms, but it also frees us from that practice of daydreaming where we let our minds indiscriminately wander from thing to thing. So isn't it amazing? You know, John lays out in this one paragraph, these extraordinary spiritual fruits that come from this one practice. And again, hearing this, it sh should be something that leads us at least want to experiment with it under, under the guidance, of course, of our confessor spiritual director, but to allow ourselves to engage in, in the practice of it. 
we keep have to tell keep we have to keep telling ourselves that Christianity is an essentially an ascetic religion. Uh, you know that we don't live it in the mind. That we are called to exercise our faith in concrete ways, and this is includes loving others and giving to others in love and attending to them, but it also means attending to our own heart, first and foremost, in the sense of purifying it. John writes, sounds like vigils are a gateway to meet, you know, you know, you know not, not of. The, the way, I'm sorry, the gateway to the meet, you know not of, right. That's right, to be able to taste the things that we typically do not taste within this world, to be nourished upon he who is the bread of life, to nourish, you know, it's to experience the full fruit of that, what it is to receive the body, blood, soul, and divinity of the Lord in the Eucharist. It's, you know, if, if we become more sensitized to these spiritual realities, then we are going to see what it is that the Lord gives to us through the sacraments. Number six, a vigilant monk is a fisher of thoughts, and in the serenity of the night, he can easily observe and catch them. So in the stillness of the night or early morning, uh, before the noise of the world or even the animals are awaken or the birds begin to chirp, before there's traffic or before our minds begin to turn to the labors of the day is where we can be really attentive to what's going through our minds and our hearts. And so the imagery here is a great one, becomes a fissure of thoughts. We are looking to catch those particular thoughts that can lead us astray from God. And this kind of attentiveness that is fostered through vigil allows us to be able to do that. The God-loving the God monk, when the trumpet sounds for prayer, says, good, good. The lazy one says, woe, alas. Uh, one question or comment here, maybe from Louise, maybe the beloved has given people insomnia, waking up in the middle of the night, so we can turn toward him during this quiet time. You know, it's an interesting thing, because a lot of people struggle with that. And we often, you know, say, well, it's because the blue light from the screen time, or too much caffeine, things such as that, which there can be truth in it. But it can also be sort of the agitation of the mind, an active mind. Uh, and some people have more active minds than others. And so stilling the mind and the heart through prayer and through vigil. And so responding to that insomnia with prayer or even pre, in a preemptive way to have vigils as a regular part of one's life is likely to lead a person to have a more peaceful sleep. Because again, you're immersing yourself in he who is peace in that prayer. And uh, to free the mind and the heart from anxiety, any anxiety or fear, you know, to, to come into this intimacy with uh, he who offers us compassion and mercy is, is going to allow us then to step into sleep without it having 
be disturbed, having it become disturbed. And so that's why you can find some of these monks sleeping very little and, uh, and yet being well-rested uh, or able to function throughout the course of this day because perhaps those few hours of sleep that they're getting are deep and undisturbed. Whereas many of us perhaps experience an incredibly fitful sleep. And then if you throw sleep apnea on top of it, it's even worse. <laughs> then you're waking up multiple times every hour because you're not breathing. Uh, Maureen Cunningham writes, uh, sleep does not become your master. Right. And I think, you know, again, we don't want to demonize it because it's part of how we are restored. And so we can see it as gift, but uh, it ceases to be gift when it does become master, as Maureen says here, that when it controls our life. And so when we're hitting that snooze button over and over again, and we're sleeping 10 hours a day, and or when we're turning to sleep as a way of escaping the emotional realities of our life. And, you know, I think when we go through depression, you know, it's a big, you know, a big way of dealing with that is not just to take a restorative nap, but to escape from things, you know, by taking a four to six hour nap uh, and, and then go back to bed uh, at, at bedtime. And so, uh, again, this practice of vigils can address so many things, I think, on an emotional, spiritual, and spiritual level for us that, uh, again, this is a wisdom that comes not, you know, through, I think, human understanding and, and re reason. I think we see science picking up on things like fasting on a certain level, you know, in terms of health reasons, but the spiritual benefits of this are not something that you gain from reading a book. It, is come th it comes through experience where, where you've actually tasted it. And it comes in and through the gift of, of faith where we allow ourselves to be drawn on and drawn on again through, he who's our standard, Christ, where we see him doing it. And yet, and then in the following day, going from morning to night, healing people and teaching. Anthony writes, on vigils, prayers, rosaries, looking at God as the other, imposing an obligation on me makes these annoy. But maybe looking uh, at God as the other who gave me his image as an integral part of myself would make vigils, et cetera, desirable. Right. I mean, I, I think this is the problem when we, we see asceticism as simply self-denial or simply as discipline rather than a way of directing the desire that we have within us toward God that it become would that it will become something nourishing and that will also bring a kind of peace and order to one's life and I think we especially in the west you know there can be this kind of punitive way of looking at spiritual disciplines, you know, even in terms of penance after going to confession, we'll say three rosaries. Well, in some ways, if 
if we have the understanding that you're putting forward here, Anthony, in some way, the priest is communicating then, well, your, your penance, and people will hear, well, your punishment that you have to fulfill because you're a sinner and you committed these sins is to say three rosaries. We don't often explain very well that these are reparation, they're reparative, that we embrace, one would say, three rosaries, not to punish us, like, oh my gosh, three whole rosaries, you're, you know, you're killing me, priest, you know, and uh, rather than saying, thinking, well, if I'm entering into prayer with aid of the mother of God, then I'm going to be opening myself in a deeper way to the healing grace of God that I've just received within the sacrament. And it's going to allow that grace to bear the greatest fruit possible to help us overcome the sin that we had fallen into. But if we constantly, generation after generation, hand out penances as punishment, then that's how people are going to experience it. And, you know, we've lost the sight of the whole thing of penitentiaries being a place of reform. Of Obviously, there's something wrong with someone who commits crimes repeatedly. But if they simply, if you're simply locked in this cell and, you know, and experience worse things than that, you know, within prison, it's not going to do anything that's going to be healing, you know, or make a person change their ways. It's going to harden them. And embracing penance as a punishment is probably going to end up hardening the heart toward God in the, the subtle ways that, okay, God is giving me this punishment that I have to, you know, em embrace uh, because of what I've done. You know, we lose sight completely of the mercy, but also the reparative aspect of the prayer. Kate writes, Father, would you have any advice on how to begin the practice of vigils for someone who does not have a spiritual director who could help incorporate this practice in the interior life? Well, I think part of it is beginning with ordering the appetite itself. And so, you know, bringing our, not just allowing ourselves to, to sleep in and, you know, to sleep uh, as long as we want and keep hitting the snooze button. I think we want to create a kind of discipline there first of, you know, seven hours or whatever. And we do that kind of consistently over the course of time where we begin to manage that appetite and to do it in particular in order that we might pray. So one might begin moving towards the practice of vigils by going to bed at a reasonable hour, the same hour every night when possible, and rising early, uh, if preferably before sunrise, in order to have that silence and depth of prayer that one could can have at that time. And so rather than starting with the breaking of the night, uh, sometimes it's easier to begin with simply ordering the amount that we sleep and schedule and scheduling our rise time earlier so that we have undisturbed prayer. Because one of the things that I hear from people all the time is that my life doesn't allow for it. I do not have time for prayer. And one of the things that vigils and ordering 
one sleep does is it removes that that excuse, if you will, and opens up that time for undisturbed prayer. And I, I, to be honest with you, I think that's the first step towards then when one tastes the sweetness of those early morning hours uh, for prayer, then the, the notion of breaking the night, uh, even for a short period of time, uh, to, to pray becomes something that one can see and understand in faith and embrace it. Anthony writes, the cell becomes hell. Right, rather than the cell becoming paradise, uh, a taste of heaven uh, for the, the monk, you know, for the, the prisoner. Yeah, cell is just a cell, but worse than that, becomes hell. You know, this kind of terrible isolation from the world and where there's nothing that is, uh, unless somebody comes into their life that is a positive influence is going to be reparative. And so when people talk about the reform of the, you know, you know, legal system and and you know of prisons you know i think we have to go a lot further than law you know or how things are uh you know dealt with in the courts to think about the human person and, and what you're trying to help them through which is a real kind of sickness of mind it's a spiritual ailment as well as emotional the two are intimately tied together and so if you're just locked, throwing somebody in a cell, you know, it's probably, again, going to harden, harden them. And so you know, the person who hears the bell for prayer is going to rejoice. Again, that's a funny thing to think that one could rise in the morning and say, thank goodness, my favorite time of the day, because it's that time for prayer. Whereas the lazy monk is going to say, oh, goodness sake, I'm going to, you know, if I could throw a rock at that guy you know, clamoring on the piece of wood to wake us up, then, you know, I would. Uh, the scene from, what's that movie, Groundhog Day, you know, where the clock goes off, you know, every morning at the same time, and he ends up throwing it on the floor across the room. I think it's, you know, our typical attitude, rather than joy. The preparing of the table exposes gluttons. But the work of prayer expo exposes lovers of God. The former skip on seeing the table, but the, the latter scowl. Is, sorry, I love his imagery. So, you know, when the table is being set, you know, all of a sudden a monk can become buoyant and he's filled with energy. And John says he'll skip to the refectory. You know, thank goodness it's lunchtime. And uh, whereas, you know, for the monk who loves prayer, you're, you're going to see in his countenance something emerge. That, oh, the joy of my joy, this is where I'm truly nourished, uh, is, is in the depth of prayer. And so this is what I, I want for myself. Long sleep produces forgetfulness, but vigil purifies the memory. So interesting, and we'll stop with this one tonight, uh, because I think there's a lot that we could say about it. Um, long sleep produces forgetfulness. So we will often sleep not to deal with reality, but to escape reality, 
to forget it, to repress it, to drive it into the unconscious. Whereas vigil, prayer, is something that purifies the memory. And I would say, I would use the word heals. And it's often a hard thing for us to imagine that memory or imagination and things like it could be healed. That the trials, the afflictions, the traumas that we've experienced in life can be healed by God, not by repressing them or forgetting them, but allowing him to enter into them in order that he can bring the healing that he and he alone knows that we need to experience vulnerability in a way that is not only safe, but truly comforting and consoling. And, you know, it's hard, you know, when a person has experienced trauma in their life, vulnerability is going to be a hard thing, certainly in relationships with others, especially when trauma has been experienced repeatedly throughout the course of one's life. But there's going to be a hard time approaching God and that vulnerability. Why trust him? You know, when I've experienced these things in my life. And, uh, and so, you know, it's an amazing thing to me that the fathers would talk about this. And it's a sad thing to me that we have often so disconnected ourselves from the spiritual tradition that we do not make this connection between the spiritual life, our relationship with God, and the healing of our sin with the healing of the whole self, including memory the things that af affect and afflict us, that God has everything to do with what af affects and afflicts us. And so we should be teaching that prayer is the deepest source of healing. Again, not this obligation, you know, as if we're giving something to God that he needs. It's it's responding to a love that is being offered that, that brings us healing and hope in a, in a way that's far beyond what we, we can imagine. And until we begin to teach people about prayer and speak about prayer in this way, you know, eventually it's going to be something that fades away because it's not going to be nourishing. And it's going to be something that is, again, being imposed or something that uh, draws those memories that makes us vulnerable in, in a sense that it allows those memories to come to the forefront, but without, he without healing. So what we begin to experience in silence can be, be something that draws us into a kind of despondency if we are not simultaneously experiencing the presence of love, the presence of compassion and mercy. And so sometimes the, the, the work that has to be done within the church is healing, helping people find healing, not only of the trauma that they've experienced, but also uh, of a false image of God that has been presented to them 
And often through those who have been the vehicle of trauma, the instrument of trauma, I'm sorry, for that individual has also been the, the one who's the instrument of their image of God, which makes it very difficult. And uh, I was talking to someone, a couple of people uh, actually this week about this, about uh, you know, priests being pressed uh, for time with a confession line and coming out and telling people, now everybody, confession is not uh, counseling. And so you just need to come in and give the facts, the deep, you know, the details in and out. And I'm sorry, that's not going to bear fruit. And in fact, it's going to wound individuals because on some level you're saying that what you've struggled with is being reduced to this moral, in a moralistic way, to this one act, rather than being seen in the context of your whole life as a human being and your experience. And so rush through this because I have to get to something else that's important, rather than allowing people to have the opportunity to talk about these things within the context of their, their life as a whole. So in a sense, what is to be healing can, also, can almost become a kind of violence to the soul. Especially if you find a priest who's nonplussed by the whole experience, you know, he's, he wants to get out of there or you hear him tapping on the keyboard or, you know, you get the sense that he wasn't really listening simply by the penance that he gives or he gives the same penance to every single person, say three Hail Marys and three Our Fathers and addresses nothing about what, what has been said. A couple of comments here before we wrap things up. Ren Witter writes, uh, uh, is that yeah or yay? Yeah, yeah, okay. <laughs> yeah, the type and number narrative about confession really makes the sacrament so transactional and more like a bad experience with your doctor than an encounter with God. Absolutely. I mean, I've heard the same language used about a doctor who comes in and sort of barks things at the patient. And as, as the patient is trying to say, this is what I've been experiencing, the doctor thinks he already knows, you know, what the problem is and, you know, prescribes something and rush, rushes them out to go see another patient. And in fact, you know, I have a doctor who's extraordinary, who will spend 45 minutes with you and even talk about faith with you. And people will often write in reviews, they love this guy, not simply because the, he's a good diagnosti diagnostician, but be, uh, because he listens and he engages you. And he knows about your life and all the stresses in your life as well. That's a good doctor. And he's been called in and in his reviews by you know, the boards that they're subject to and questioned about this. We have people writing reviews saying that you actually talked to them about religion. And you know, so it's, you know, in their eyes, it's a break. He's not acting as a physician would act. Ren, did you have a quick follow-up before we go on to Bonnie's? Yeah, it's just like that, your response there it just made me think that, you know, we sometimes wonder why people go to things like 
Reiki, yoga, like Eastern meditation, so many other quasi-spiritual things. And it reminds me actually of that exact thing with doctors. Like if you go to a typical Western doctor and he just brushes you off and there's no care and there's no attentiveness and there's no time given. And it's just like, I don't have time for you. Like, well, he doesn't even touch me. you. He doesn't even touch you. It's like, tell me exactly what is wrong with you. And I will prescribe an exact medicine and I'll get you the heck out of here. That's when people go and like, I mean, I, I believe in like herbs and, and cool stuff too, but that's when they go to like crazy things, you know, and they think like, super bizarre things and they get desperate people get desperate for something that will heal them for someone that will listen to them for something that matters and then they spend years pursuing something that might not be fruitful and I think it's the exact same thing with the spiritual life like you go to a priest you're desperate and you're looking for someone to listen to you and it doesn't happen and then you're gonna go and you're like well you know someone will listen to me at Reiki, someone will listen to me at yoga, someone will listen to me at a meditation right? Like, and so you go there and it's not, these people can't be blamed. Like they're desperate. They're, they're searching for someone to listen to them. So, right. yeah. Absolutely. <laughs> and, you know, in the Eastern Rite, I think we can learn something from the Eastern Rites in this regard. Not that it's practiced perfectly, and it often isn't. But, you know, it's not done within the confession, confessional behind the screen. It's often done in the center of the church, standing before an icon. I, I, haven't, I haven't learned to do this because my as a Western Rite, uh, Latin Rite priest, I'm so used to the Latin Rite form. But the person will often be standing in the middle of the church, gazing at the icon of Christ, confessing to Christ, and the priest when offering absolution, will place the stole over the top of the head, you know, co covering the individual as if the sins themselves are being covered by the mercy and the grace of God. And so there's something tactile there as well as visual that is, is, is taking place. And, uh, and it creates a much different experience. Now, the sad thing is that the frequent confession often isn't encouraged or practiced. Uh, and so come to my church because I have a lot of time, free time within the confessional. And I'll listen to everything that you have, have to say. Uh, I'm lucky if I get one or two. Uh, but uh, so, yeah, you know, all, everything that you said, I think is right on, on the mark. And I think... Uh, you know, again, it's part of our minimalism. And I, I think all the stuff with abuse within the life of the church has made us even, you know, withdraw more. You know, I know priests that, you know, won't touch any anyone or get close to anyone because of the, the fear or anxiety that this has created. COVID is, is another one, too you know, that makes everybody a car carrier of this deadly virus that, you know, that we have to, you know, keep, keep six feet away from and wear a mask. And so, you know, there's a lot that we need to do here that and I, we lost our point here, which is the idea of purifying memory. And, you know, how is that done? Uh, other than the vulnerability of entering into this deep prayer life with God. 
Bonnie Lewis writes, Father, I had a priest say to me that in the confession, it did hurt and surprise me. I've never forgotten it, obviously. Yeah, and in in it's tons of people. I think more, uh, a lot more people experience this than we imagine. And I think it's probably more the norm, sadly. And uh, we have to create a different kind of culture and a different way of viewing the priesthood that, uh, that especially in the formation of priests, it says, this is what you're ordained for. You're not ordained to be an administrator. You're not ordained to be you know, a plumber or an accountant. You know, you're ordained to sit in the confessional and wait for people if need be, you know, and uh, in order to be able to do it well. So, okay. So we were a little over time there. I'm sorry about that, folks. Uh, I didn't realize that last one would take us so far afield, but uh, awesome comments, once again, makes it so rich every week. So thank you. When we close, as always, with our Father, in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, amen. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us and lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Amen. The Lord be with you. May Almighty God bless you, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Go in peace.